0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres.
1: You are back in the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. Joining me today as co-host, we've got Mr. Michael Hawley.
2: Hello, how are you doing, Al?
1: I'm doing good. Well, (laughs) as good as can be, you know, lots going on. Um, uh, yeah, you're doing well, of course. You, you just got you got back from LA. you were making that big TV appearance
2: on. Yeah, yeah. History's greatest mysteries will be, uh, I think, around April timeframe that'll they'll pop on, and then uh, get to see my uh, radio face. <laughs> yeah,
1: and you, of course, you're the biggest mystery that they've got in history. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it works. It works.
1: Yeah, it works. It never ends. I'll tell you. Okay. Well, now, today, uh, we have an interesting guest. We have a science fiction writer from the UK. First, when I saw his picture, I thought we were talking about Sean Bean. You know, I thought, <laughs> it's exciting here. But no, it's not. It's uh, Mr. Gareth Powell. Now, thank you for being here, Gareth.
3: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Um, do people get you mixed up with Sean Bean?
3: No, that's never happened before. Um,
1: <laughs> First time.
3: I've, I've been told I Looked like Brendan Gleeson a few times, but not Sean mean.
1: Well, now you go. Now you have. I think you look like him. but I mean, at least your picture does on the uh, on your, um, you know, Amazon page.
3: Yeah. Well, does that mean that I'm going to have to die halfway through this?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. You, he never makes it to the end of the series. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, I don't think so, but you never know. Mike, I, I don't trust him, so. <laughs> um, well, Gareth, you, you've written a lot of books uh, I see quite a few books here under this um, Have you been writing all your life? Is this something that you've done since you were a young kid?
3: or? Yeah, I mean, I started writing books in inverted commas When I was at primary school um, Sort of aged, I remember I six or seven Writing um, in spiral-topped reporters' notebooks, um, great long, rambling stories that were basically cribbed off that night's episode of Star Trek or Battlestar or Galactica, and kind of with the names changed and uh, some of my own ideas thrown in. So, yeah, I mean, I've always done it. Um, you know, I used to fold, get four or five pages of A4, fold them in half, and staple the. Spine to create a little book and then draw all the pictures and write a story in it. So it's something I've done since I was very small. Um, I think my grandmother at one point, I wrote a story called Death Trap. Uh, um, and my grandmother said, Oh, you could be a professional writer. And I think I was about eight years old. So, she, you know, she doomed me. Um,
1: <laughs> well, but that's good. That's good to have that, that, that kind of support in a way. Um, you know. Um, yeah. So. so how did you get into writing how did you decide to get something published
3: when i was um 16 or 17 um i won a school competition um where you had to write a short story in the first three chapters of a novel and the prize was to have your work reviewed by diana Wynne jones um so i met her in a coffee shop one morning and uh she went through and and really tore my writing to shreds um but it was the first professional uh feedback i'd ever had and it kind of opened my eyes and it was like oh i don't just have to write like i'm writing for an english literature a level i can write like i want to tell a story um i don't have to use all the long fancy words i can just tell a story um and that kind of sowed the seed, and then when I went to university, I did creative writing. One of my tutors was the novelist Helen Dunmore, um, who taught taught me more in one afternoon than I'd learned in three years of uh, English literature at school. And I went on from there and, you know, never thought I could make a career out of being a writer. I had no idea how you went about doing that, so I got the usual sort of postgraduate jobs in call centres and um, ended up working in marketing. But then one day I read um, Burning Chrome by William Gibson. Hmm. And I thought, you know, oh, that's how you do it. And that just gave me the confidence to, to stop trying to write like Arthur C. Clarke or, or Robert Heinlein and just write Kind of what I knew from kind of like a grunt's perspective, um, and just start writing those stories. So I wrote I wrote some short stories that were kind of Gibson influenced, and then I gradually started to find my own voice, I mulched in some other influences and all the stuff I'd read, and eventually that kind of bore fruit when I was about. Um, I was about 35 when I had my first Interzone publication. So, yeah, it took a while.
2: So that critique really helped you out then?
3: It it definitely was one of the kind of, you know, I think in life there are, you can probably identify about half a dozen 10 points that set you on the course you're on now, and that was definitely one of them.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, things like that, you know, we come across that.
3: So did you push her down the stairs on the way out for coffee or...? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, she, I, I don't know if you, you ever met her or you know her, but she had this huge bush of sort of black and grey hair and looked, um, you know, it was dressed very exotically and I think, she, if I recall correctly, she had a leather jacket and like a big scarf. She looked very witchy and I was frankly terrified.
2: <laughs> fear, <laughs> fear works.
3: <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, that's,
1: it's it's interesting. So there's a certain freedom that comes with that when you just start to let go and, and just write from your own your own
3: mind, just to your own self, hey? Yeah, I think, um, and having talked to other writers over the years, I think we all start out trying to emulate our influences, but it's when um, there comes a sudden point where you're writing something and you, you suddenly realize you're writing just from yourself, just it's coming from yourself. You're not trying to, to write like anybody else anymore, and you think that sentence is all mine, and you suddenly realise you found your voice, and then you have to kind of develop that and, and sort of chase that and work, work out what that is. Um, and that's, that's the moment everything sort of clicks into place, I guess. I guess it's like... Um, if you're learning the trumpet or something, you play like Miles Davis or you play like Dizzy Gillespie, and then suddenly you play a riff and it's just come completely from you, and you think, "Oh, that's how I play it," and then you kind of have your own style. I think it's the same with writing. Certainly, uh, you know, you now
1: science fiction is your is 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 what you write. Um, I wonder if um, if something like that, where do you get the uh, ideas for your stories do they come in dreams do they come in um where, where does it start for
3: you and they come from all over the place uh, um, i have had stories that have come from dreams where i've woken up and thought that is just too crazy i have to write that down um and but sometimes i've just thought of a character and sort of built a story from that character or i've thought of like some wacky situation and kind of built a world around that in order for that to happen so um you know i I thought i wrote one story which was um based around the idea of what if there was a machine that could turn you into anything you wanted um and then a whole story grew out of that one um called the last reef which was my first interzone story um so they come from they come from sort of a diverse number of places and sometimes an idea isn't enough you need to find another idea and then kind of squash them together in order to get a, a good story um the example I'd give would be John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids right where he had an idea for you know an edible plant but on their own they're not much threat because you know you can just run away from them or get your lawnmower out and poof. but um then he have the meteor shower that makes everybody blind, and suddenly those plants are really scary because they can be right there and you don't know they're there. So it, it's funny with two kind of that intersection of ideas. It's usually where the, the sweet spot comes and the good stories are.
1: Yeah, that's it, it's an interesting um, idea. Do you, when you So when you're writing and, like, you're getting into, you know, writing a space science fiction or a, um, some some story, do you, do you take from other, I don't know, established rules, let's say, about let's say space and aliens and Mars and all that, do you kind of take from popular culture and kind of what people think about different things, you know, it, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like if you wrote about a vampire or a werewolf, do you take ideas, do you give them the, the, the same rules that others do?
3: I think there are conventions and traits in any branch of literature and all literature is a kind of a conversation with itself so you can't write about for instance the invasion of the world without bearing in mind like hg Wells's war of the worlds or the movie independence day and you know there are so many different versions of that in popular culture that you have to be aware of them and you have to whether to reference them or to avoid referencing them, but you, you have to be aware that they're there. Um, and you mentioned vampires as well. I mean, every vampire story that is written now has to, in some way, reflect everything that's gone before because it's a subject that's been done so thoroughly in so many different ways that you have to, you know, acknowledge or subvert or do something to put a new spin on it um, but yeah I try to stay away from those kind of archetypal stories as much as possible um, because as I said they're very well trodden ground and probably trodden by in ways that will stand the test of time more than anything I could add to that, to that conversation so I, I try to kind of steer into slightly different backwaters and find, find the, the new stuff in there
2: that's good. That's all new. That's nice.
3: I wouldn't claim it's all you, but uh, obviously <laughs> I, I have my my influences and, and you know stuff I've, I've I'm covering has is, is been done before. I'm just hopefully finding the less common stuff and doing it in a slightly different way. Do
2: you have the uh, you all those short stories you have? Have you enlarged those, uh, or do you kind of keep it separate?
3: I. A couple of the short stories I wrote that were in my first collection, uh, I did expand them into a novel at one point, um, and then there was another story I wrote about a, a computer-generated monkey, which um, accidentally got expanded into a three-novel series. So, it's um, yeah, I think short stories are an extremely good place to work out ideas and to test ideas to see. You know, if they've got the legs for a longer story, and sometimes they will, and sometimes they won't. But uh, short stories for me are all about ideas. Whereas novels tend to be all about character. So it's um, short stories are a very good kind of test firing range for uh, your ideas.
1: So um, now, on your newest book that's coming out here in March, um, "Stars and Bones," and it's a continuance novel. Um, what's the premise of this book?
3: The premise of this book is that in roughly seventy-five years' time, um, an sort of uh, almost omnipotent alien being stumbles across the Earth and decides to save the Earth. Um, it does not, however, decide to save humans because it decides to save the Earth from the humans. So it gathers the human race up and puts us aboard a fleet of arcs and tells us to go away. Um, go off into space and don't go messing up any other planets because we can't be trusted to be in charge of a biosphere without polluting it and messing it up and, and all that. So the human race is adjusting to a kind of nomadic lifestyle and adjusting to its place in a cosmos filled with these sort of almost unimaginably powerful beings. And then a scout ship that's flying ahead of the fleet runs into something fairly terrible, and goes missing, and the sister of one of the crew um, decides to lead the search party to find what happened to them and uh, it all goes from there it's I would say it's kind of like a cross between Battlestar Galactica and the thing in some ways
1: <laughs> Okay. It, it, it's it's kind of an interesting thought so do you ever have like um subtext or do you kind of have something in your mind when you're writing these stories that you kind of hope the reader takes away from the book after they read it
3: um I mean yeah i mean you you always have kind of your opinions and your views and all of that is sort of bubbling away underneath and feeding into the story. Um, I always try to avoid editorialising, so I'll never kind of come straight out and make my opinion. You know, the character the characters in the book will have opinions, um, some of which I'll agree with and some of which I won't. Um, but you know, I do. I think that people who read the books will come away with a fairly accurate idea of my kind of general views. Your characters, like,
1: we're, so how do you create characters and, and make them so that they're very believable or um, complex enough that people um, understand them? Like, we're, are they people that you, you you know or you've met or you see someone on the street or in a coffee shop or in a pub and then you kind of go, mm. I like this this behavior or something, and you use that, or is it just totally out of the blue?
3: Usually, as, as I say, I'll, I'll have a situation in mind, and then I'll think, who do I need? What characters do I need to explore this situation? Um, so I'll come up with, with some characters. And usually when I'm coming up with a character, I kind of think that all of us have a place in our lives where we're damaged. Something happened to us in the past that damaged us. Um, whether it's like loss of a parent or or some you know, injury or some illness or loss of a pet. Everybody has something that caused them some damage and the way we heal from that damage informs the way we respond to future situations. So I will try and for each character think of what have what traumatic thing in their past um change them as people and then that informs that if they're thrown into a similar situation they will maybe react in a different way than somebody who's not gone through that kind of trauma so every character has that you sort of unique way of reacting to the world that's based on kind of uh healing from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune
1: quite a few people that we talk to authors of writing and fiction um talk about their relationship with these characters, that the characters they've written. And some of them will go as far as to describe them as like family and friends or children and things like that. And they have this um, almost like they're real. And some of them say that they're real. Um, what's your relationship with your characters? Do you have that same sort of feeling or are you completely different?
3: I think most of my characters have at least part of me in them, Um, because I write from, you know, I try to get authentic by kind of writing authentically from my own experience, um, or from, you know, experiences of I've had related to me, or or so forth. So, I don't, I've never felt that they're actually real. Um, You know, I, I actually do have children and a family, and I know, I know the difference there because you know um, children can be much more annoying. So, but <laughs> um, characters do what they're told. But um, no, it's it's no. I, 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 right. I do get very, I do get very fond of some characters. I do enjoy writing them, it, which is difficult. Cause sometimes you have to put them through the ringer in order to make a good story, so you can't get too fond of them. Um, but usually, once, there's, once the story's finished, and I walk away from them, I don't look back particularly.
1: It's interesting. It, it's just so interesting to hear different writers um, talk about their characters and 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 stories and stuff like that. Um, do Do you think that um, these kinds of stories, that science fiction, like you've got this with the the Earth seventy five years from now, and yeah human race and the dying earth and stuff like that, and they're kind of a cause do you do you think that kind of represents um the world we kind of live in at the time you write the books
3: I think yes, all science fiction really is a kind of reflection on the time in which it's written um because you're taking the world of today and and saying what would happen if I made x, y, and Z different, or what would happen if this thing that we're doing today continues to a ridiculous degree, what would the world look like then? So, you know, at the same way that when George Orwell were at 1984, he was really writing about 1948, what happens with science fiction is it's mainly holding a mirror up to reality. Um, But it's like a crazy funhouse mirror, so we get to distort various bits of the world in interesting ways and say, look, this is I want to talk, for instance, about, uh, let me think of a topic offhand, I, w- I want to talk about economics. So in order to do that, I will invent a s- society um, like Ian Banks did, which is a patient's guess, the society, where anybody there can have any material object they want, any amount of food they want. Nobody is poor, there is no money. Wallop. And so he writes about that as a utopia. Um a utopia with a, a slightly dark underside. Um, and by doing that, he's not just living, he's, he's commenting on the system we have today by showing it's a completely different system. So I think he wrote that in the sort of dark days of Thatcherism in the 70s and 80s. So he's very much, although he seems to be talking about something completely removed in time and space, very much commenting on the world in which it was written.
2: Has the COVID um, experience uh, influenced any of your writing
3: uh, not directly, no. Although coincidentally, Stars and Bons, uh, the majority of which was written before uh, COVID really oh, kicked in, does uh, unfortunately feature some times when the entire fleet has to go into severe quarantine measures, which was uh, more which was more influenced by the movie Alien than by COVID, but. Um, it, it gets to the point where you're sitting there under lockdown writing about quarantine and you start thinking, oh, God, this is a little too on the nose. So so you,
2: so you started it. Is that what I'm hearing, Gareth? <laughs>
3: yes, it was all my fault. It's yeah.
0: <laughs> all your fault. Um, now it- we at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step by step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C it 's truly criminal So, with
1: um, someone that 's never read your books before, um, uh, which one book would you tell them to read in order to get kind of the flavor of what kind of writer you are?:
3: The book i 've written that, seems, that has certainly sold the most, but certainly seems to provoke the biggest kind of outpouring of enthusiasm. Yes from readers is a book called Embers of War. It uh, came out in 2018. It's the uh, space opera about a sentient battleship who decides to resign from the Navy and and help people instead of blowing things up and uh, struggles with that decision and with her inbuilt instincts to lay waste to planets instead of um, doing good. she develops a conscience, in other words. So um, that's the one. It's the first of uh, three book series, um, and it's currently being adapted for television. So get in and read it now, and, and then you'll be ahead of the curb uh, when it comes out.
1: That's when, great. Would you, would, so when you're doing a series like that, of, of Emperors of War, do you sort of outline your, your work, and do you kind of know how it begins and where it's going to end and the books just kind of get you there or is this totally just ad hoc, it's just as you go
3: um, Embers was uh, sold to Titan Books as a trilogy so we, my agent sold it as a trilogy so at that point I had written the first book and then I had sort of back of an envelope sketches of what would happen in the second two books so um and it was kind of bought on that basis. They kind they of read the first book and really liked it and then commissioned the two, the two sequels at the same time. So uh, I didn't have all the fine details hammered out because when you follow characters and the characters drive the narrative, they can go off in slightly unexpected directions and change things. But I had a pretty good kind of sketch map of where it was going to end up. Well, it's
1: interesting. So you, you have characters that have actually gone off the rails, gone places where you didn't expect
3: very much so um, because there's nothing that kind of throws you out of a story harder than a character doing something stupid or doing something out of character just to fit the needs of the plot so you know I try to if I get to a point where I just think no that character just simply wouldn't do that then I have to kind of work around and find a different path um, so you know I try to follow the characters because I think readers will follow a a character they sympathise with and identify with, um, and get quite annoyed if those characters suddenly turn around and just do something that's just quite ridiculous just to further, um, obviously, the the needs of the plot. I mean, how many times have uh, we screamed at cinema screens when the character decides to you know, let's all go into the haunted house or you know, I'm going down to the scary basement by myself and things like that. And you think, well in that situation that character just simply wouldn't do that. They'd turn or run the other way. So you have to try and be a bit more kind of authentic in your approach.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a kind of a yeah, it's an interesting area. Now space opera, you've mentioned that, so how do you describe like what is a space opera for uh, I've heard that term a lot lately, so I'm I'm curious about um, what it's what it encompasses.
3: Well, it started out actually as a, a derogatory term um, back in the 40s and 50s, I think, where it was likened to a soap opera, and uh, westerns were known as horse operas, and so. Um, they called them the space operas, which was kind of very pulpy, very trashy um, kind of space adventure serial where you could have just set it in the Wild West and nobody would have noticed the difference. Um, and then that kind of term kind of got reclaimed over the years. And then especially in the sort of the turn of the millennium, the new space opera that came out of a lot of UK write, were, were writing, it became a term for kind of large widescreen kind of space adventure dealing with big themes. Um sort of life, death, the history of the universe, everything in between. Um and sort of very dramatic. And so it's kind of kind of kind of a catch-all for that kind of big space-based adventure. Um but modern space opera is, is sort of so far away from that early kind of Buck Rogers stuff. It's now dealing with, as I said, the, the big questions of, you know, who are we? What do we do while we're here? And where are we going? And what's going to happen after we die? And what happened before we got here? Um, and it's, it's dealing with that and our relationship with the past and uncaring cosmos.
1: You know, I wonder, the, um, there's so many categories now, so many uh, genres of, of science fiction, you know, hard science fiction and, and all the, all these different names. Do you, do you sort of try to be one category of sci-fi or do you like one better than the other?
3: No, I don't. I mean, they are, at the end of the day, they're marketing categories, um, designed to help, um, readers identify books like the ones they've, just read, um, so if you say, i read this, I want to find more books like that. What, what is this? You say, oh, that's space opera, or that's hard sci-fi. It's the same in crime writing where you have like cozy mysteries and hard-boiled detective and stuff. But, you know, a lot of people read and enjoy all sorts of different stories from all sorts of different subgenres, and a lot of people outside the field don't even know the names of all these subgenres. They're just sci-fi books. Um so, I tend to take the kind of increasing kind of more and smaller and smaller balkanization of, of the genre into all these different tiny sub-genres sub, sub, sub genres with a, a huge pinch of salt because I, I read all of them um, and I enjoy all of them and they're just different ways of telling stories.
2: Is that yeah. part of your research for a book is to read other or uh, the different ideas or um, do you research... This is coming from no, us I mean, non-fiction guys that we research like crazy.
3: Yeah. No, the, the reason I read other sci-fi um, is because uh, I, I write sci-fi because I love reading it, um, and I grew up reading it, and I grew up on, on science fiction, so that's kind of why I, I still read it now. I also, you know, now I'm published, I read it in some way to keep in touch. My publisher tends to send me um, advanced copies of books that are coming out because they want We'd put a quote on the cover, so I, I get to keep up with a lot of what's happening in the genre. Um, okay. And a lot of the book, books are, are books by friends of mine who are other writers, so I try and keep up with uh, them as well. So it's not so much research, but it's just keeping abreast of what everyone else is doing.
1: Have you ever read a sci-fi book you didn't like from a friend? you want to tell us or na- his name now? or?
3: Um, not... <laughs> No, I've, I've definitely read books. I, I've hated it, but not one by anyone I knew. So, um,
1: so who do you, who do you like in science fiction? Um, I guess some of the older writers, some of the ones before, not modern day. Or do you like modern day? Like, what's where do you stand on sci-fi? What's your favorite?
3: Um, I grew up reading sort of Lanyon and Arthur C. Clarke, as I said, and Robert Heinlein um i come most of most of what I read at the moment is, is very modern so um particularly i'm reading uh, a lot of Aliette de Bodard at the moment um she's writing about a a society set in space in hundreds of years' time but from that grew from vietnam so it's it's kind of a completely different cultural base than what we usually think of what we think about. Um, sort of space empires, so it's um, it's very interesting. Adrian Tchaikovsky is a uh, a, a fellow British writer um, who's writing a phenomenal number of books. He seems to have one out every fortnight. I mean, it uh, makes the rest of us look really bad. Uh, but the quality of what he's writing is amazing. I just can't get enough of what what he's putting out in the world at the moment. There there are you know an awful lot of good writers. Um, working in the genre um, and a lot of new voices that have come through in the last decade from minorities um, and from groups that weren't traditionally associated with the genre as well um, I, I would say probably at least six or seven out of ten of my favourite novels of the last four or five years have been written by women and uh, people of colour so it's a very different kind of Injection of different influences and ideas and voices that's really kind of given the, the, the genre kind of vividness um, that it has at the moment. That's very, very exciting. What do you
1: think the most important aspect of a good science fiction is? What is it that you look for in a good science fiction?
3: I look for something that, A, engages me but also something that makes me think but not necessarily in a kind of dry kind of scientific way like maybe very old science fiction was just elucidating the scientific ideas. I think now the readership has matured somewhat and we are more familiar with a wider range of scientific um, theories than, than perhaps when science fiction set out to be kind of like an educational genre. Now we are more okay with that sort of thing, so I'm looking for things that explore topics that are larger and maybe more in depth, and more to do with the characters as well as the worlds in which they find themselves. So I'm looking for escapism, but I'm also looking for something that will kind of make me think about who I am as a person and my relationship with the universe.
1: You know, when you, we we went back, if we go back to the Ambush of War, and you talk about being signed to do it television show based on it does that make you feel like um there's a lot of pressure behind that or how it turns out or what they do with it
3: uh, not especially no i mean i've read i've i read the first draft of the pilot script which was phenomenally good because obviously they had to make some changes because a lot of just isn't doable on screen um but there's a director attached in the studio and they're, they're writing a, a second draft of the pilot now, and then they're going to start shopping it to networks. Um, I have a small consultancy role within that process, um, but it's a completely different art form. Television is is not my wheelhouse. So I write novels, so I'm happy to be the scriptwriter and the director and the people who know how television works will adapt that material For that art form, Um, obviously, I hope it does well because then, you know, obviously, I'd like all my other books to be adapted as well, and you know, for huge briefcases full of Hollywood money to come arrive on my doorstep. But um, we can, we can, but hope. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I hope it does well, but uh, it's out of my hands. So I'm trying not, you know, I, I don't get anxious about it. I mean, I will, you know, when the first episode hits the screen, I will be a very nervous dude. But until that point, it's just, you know, it's all out of my hands.
2: A proud yeah. father. I have a question, Gareth. The uh, You have a family, and you're writing these novels, and you're reading profusely. Uh, how do you do it? Do you set your schedule up? Is there a certain time that you uh, set to write, or how do you do that?
3: No, i mean ideally that would be a good way to do things that's how things were in the early years but now my kids are older so their schedules are are different um so i don't get evenings to myself anymore because they you know they tend to stay up later than i do so and they you know they need lifts to work in the morning or lifts to school and and it's um i kind of end up just doing that classic con- a working parent thing of, of trying to do everything and dropping the ball <laughs> all over the place and right. uh, never, get, never feel like, never feel I'll do enough with everything because um, I was running from one to the other so yeah it's just a, it's a situation I think an awful lot of people over the last few years have found themselves in now so many people have been working from home with families they've lost that kind of separation between work and home um, and it can be a very difficult juggling act
2: Oh, that's, that could be another sci-fi movie right there or a book, <laughs> something in there I think you're on to something
1: <laughs> When you get to reviews and stuff like that, do do you follow reviews or do you interact with people that review any of your work?
3: Um, I don't obsessively look for reviews or anything I mean, nowadays we have social media so oftentimes times I will become aware of a review because someone will post it on Twitter and tag me in um so I'll stick my nose in and, and have a look and um, I'm, I'm fortunate I, I ra- rarely get bad reviews um and if I do well you know not everybody can like everything so you know art is subjective so uh, you know you shrug and move on um the idea I guess is is you don't let the good reviews go to your head and you don't let the bad reviews go to your heart you have to kind of maintain some distance and usually by the time the reviews are coming out I'm one or two books further along because you know of the the time it takes for books to be published by the time a book comes out and started getting reviewed obviously I'm really keen for it to do well but I'm halfway through the next one so it's it doesn't feel like the end of the world uh, because I'm already working on the next thing Um, But yeah, that that said, I'm fortunate that most of the reviews I get are are great. I never go on to sites like Goodreads or, you know, I try not to look at the reviews on Amazon um, simply because, you know, I think if you spend too much time worrying about these things, you can drive yourself kind of into a state of self-consciousness about what you're writing that makes it very difficult to carry on writing. I noticed this especially when Embers of War came out. Um, I wrote Embers of War, it got accepted, and it went off the publishing process. While it was doing that, I wrote the sequel, Fleet of Knives, uh, which I, I wrote very quickly, really enjoyed it, a great time. But then when I came to write the third book, the first book had just come out and was getting massively great reviews. And that froze me, in a way, because I was writing the third book. I thought, oh my God, they love the first book. And suddenly there was a performance expectation there that this had to be, this third one had to be a great book to, to live up to the first one. So in some ways, you know, good reviews can be as paralyzing as bad ones. So, you know, in the end it spurred me on and I, you know, I did my best and uh, I think I managed to stick the landing. But, um Spending too much time obsessing about reviews can only kind of harm the writing that you're doing.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't want it to become your focus. You know, it, it takes you off your game. Then you know. Um, now, social media. Um, do you do you like to interact with readers on social media, or do you have a website? How do you like people to um, kind of um, get a hold of
3: you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I have a website, which is. Um, www.garethlpowell.com um, And I spend a lot of time on Twitter um, at Gareth L. Powell where I do talk to a lot of readers um, I'm fairly open, I give a lot of writing advice um, I do a lot of Q&As and I help boost other writers and recommend books and, and, and stuff like that so I'm pretty active on Twitter um, and I've got a great kind of community around me on there as well. So, um, that's very good. I also use a site called Patreon, um, which is like a crowdfunding site where people can, you know, give a dollar or five dollars or whatever they feel comfortable with a month. And in return for that, I publish kind of deleted scenes and unpublished stories and, and other sort of stuff. Exclusive kind of content there for them as well. And that that really helps keep me going between book deals. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty active Instagram as well, um, where I'm at Gareth L. Powell is a, is a different creature as well. And I put up a lot of stuff about books and photographs and, and uh, books I'm reading and so on. So, yeah, I'm, I would say I'm probably a little too active on social media because I should probably get off there and write more books but uh well, i i, yeah. I found I, I found that interaction to be really helpful with readers and i think it has helped drive a lot of book sales because people see that i'm being very open and, and engaged with the readership so they kind of check the books out which is good
1: yeah yeah well you know uh you have to get on TikTok next you know start dancing and <laughs> Um, we 'll have all that up on our website as well, so people can find you with one click and uh, get right to you and um, so it, what kind of advice do you would you give a writer or someone that 's writing that hasn 't been published yet in these modern times of amazon and everything what What do you suggest
3: uh, in in terms of writing just to re- read everything you can get your hands on, um, especially modern stuff that 's coming out just to kind of keep an idea of where things are going, where the genre is, and then you can kind of, you know Wayne Gretzky, the, the ice hockey player, said he he didn't try to, to go where the puck was, he tried to go where the puck would be by the time he got there, and it's it's the same with writing, I mean, you look at the, the genre, you think the trends in, in, in publishing, is, and then you kind of think, well, where will this be in two years when my book is done? so you can't predict it and in a lot of ways you just have to write what you want to write but you have to at the same time think well if I've got this you know if I want to write this zombie epic like five big zombie books have come out this year it's probably not going to be the best time so you have to kind of keep an eye on what's going on in the genre and at the same time stay true to what you want to do and that is a juggling act um, in terms of promoting books and, and and so forth, is uh, Patty Smith, uh, the, the punk singer, um, quoted something that William Bowes said to her, which was, keep your name, name clean, build a good name, do good work, and eventually your name will be its own currency. So, you know, it's just like, do your best work, only really put your best work out there, keep going, be persistent, and eventually, you know, you will have built a brand that is you and people will start coming to you for that.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's good advice. I like that one. Yeah. So, Star Wars or Star Trek? <laughs> Both.
3: <laughs> Both. Um <laughs> I c- I could give your, uh, that's the short answer. I give a much, much, much longer answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's the short one.
1: Well, that, that's all. It did. So now we know. Keep them guessing, you know. <laughs> well, uh, it's been a great conversation. We're glad you were able to join us today. Uh, the book we're promoting is coming out, I believe, March first uh, of this year. It's called Stars and Bones. It's a continuance novel, and the um, author has been our guest, Gareth L. Powell. Thank you for being here.